one of the mainstays of management post-op would be inotropic support and afterload reduction, which makes milrinone the perfect choice in these patients. Welcome back to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. So Alice, what do we do here at PedScript? PedScript is an educational PICU podcast. We're trying to find the attendings with all of the best bedside teaching spiels and record them to really start a conversation about peds ICU management. Zach, who are we talking to today? Today, we are very excited to meet with Dr. Melinda Corey. Dr. Corey is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics here at my institution, UT Southwestern in Dallas. She's dual boarded in pediatric cardiology and pediatric critical care. Here, she's a practicing intensivist in the cardiovascular ICU, and she's also very active in education. She's the associate program director of the cardiology fellowship program, and she also helps lead the pediatric ICU simulation team. Yes, we are so glad to have recruited her for the AV Canal episode. If there's any lesion where language and phrasing and really thinking about risk is important, it's this one. So let's get right to the episode. Let's go. Welcome back to PedScript. Dr. Melinda Corey, we are so excited to have you here with us to talk about this important topic. To get things started, will you please tell our listeners a little about yourself and include something you enjoy outside of medicine? Sure. I um, I grew up in Texas um, in a small town. You know, I decided to get double boarded in cardiology and critical care, and I now spend most of my time in the cardiac ICU, though I do some cardiology clinic. And I am the associate program director for the cardiology fellowship program. I love working with fellows. And so that's been a great addition to my career. Outside of work, I feel like I'm mostly just chasing after my two kids. They're full of energy and I'm doing whatever they want to do. But we love being outside when it's not 110 degrees here in Texas. Um, we go biking and walking and do all of those sorts of fun things. Nice. Now, our next question for you is, why did you decide to become double-boarded in cardiology and critical care? And then what advice would you have for a PICU fellow who's considering also going for the cardiology fellowship? Yeah, this was actually a really tough decision for me. And I've had many conversations with um, trainees and kind of what path to take. And I think the first thing that I would say is there are many paths to becoming a good CBICU physician. I know many people from many different backgrounds, and they're all excellent at what they do. And so when it comes down to deciding how you want to do your training, you have to think about some of the ancillary things. When I was in residency, I was very much torn between critical care and cardiology. Ultimately decided to do cardiology because it was something I was a little bit more excited about at the time. And then as I decided I wanted to do critical care, I realized I wanted that more in-depth education in the critical care side of things. I wanted to feel like I could take care of anything that walked into an ICU which I wasn't sure I would get with just a one year. And I really like the flexibility that being double boarded provides me. I can kind of take it more to the, like, the outpatient clinic side of cardiology. I can stay in the ICU and it just, I feel like gives me more options as I move through my career. Oh, that reminds me of the classic adult medicine. I did palm crit so that I could practice in a clinic if I wanted. And I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about that paradigm before. That's really interesting. Yeah. I talked to many of my peers who are thinking about going down this career path and flexibility usually is what comes up for those people who want to be double boarded. So it's interesting to hear you say that as well. Yeah. I think the one potential downside is if you do a one year CVICU, 
you get dedicated CVICU training for that year, which I didn't have. You know, I got dedicated cardiology training, I got dedicated ICU training, and then I got CVICU training interspersed in both of those. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have one dedicated year to CVICU training. So that's a potential downside, though I didn't find it to be much of a downside for myself. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. Risks and benefits to everything. And what we have found through this podcast is speaking to with our guests who are dual boarded, they have a distinct understanding of some of the anatomy and physiology mm-hmm. differences that happen outside the ICU. And I think that can give us great context for our discussion. Sure. So let's put that to work. Let's give you a okay. case. Okay. So you're on service in the CVICU and there's a four month old male with trisomy 21 who has a complete AV canal. He's scheduled for surgical repair. He's going to be coming out in the afternoon and Somehow you have some time after rounds and you want to explore with the team some of the core concepts around AV canals, what to expect when the patient comes back from the OR. So that's your scene. Your first question, what exactly is an AV canal, atrioventricular septal defect, and are they the same? Are they different? What's going on there? Great question. And so you'll find many terms that refer to the same defect. So endocardial cushion defect, common atrioventricular canal defect, complete AV septal defect, and these are all referring to the same constellation of findings. There are two different primary um, anatomical classifications that cardiologists follow, and that's why there are many times multiple names. But either one is an acceptable term. Nice. If we start with AV canal or atrioventricular septal defect, AVSD, How do we start to think about the subtypes that we immediately need to classify these kids into? I think if we think about the basics of the origins of an AV canal defect, it all stems from the endocardial cushion failing to fuse. And so the endocardial cushion is the embryologic origin for the AV valves, the lower part of the atrial septum and the superior portion of the ventricular septum. And so when that endocardial cushion fails to fuse, then you get an abnormality in the septal leaflets of the AV valves and in the atrial and ventricular septal defects. So one of the mistakes that I made as a medical student, thinking back, was thinking that an AV canal was just an ASD and a VSD, that any patient that had an ASD and a VSD was a complete AV canal, and that is not the case. An AV canal defect really refers to an abnormality really at the crux of the heart where you have an abnormality in the AV valves in addition to the atrial and ventricular septum. And so from there, we kind of start to think about the different types like you mentioned. So complete AV canal is the one we think about. It has a common AV valve and it has an atrial septal defect and a ventricular septal defect. And so you can kind of think of just like a large hole in the middle of the heart. Whereas a partial... AV canal defect is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. There's just that primum atrial septal defect. And there are still two distinct AV valves. So they are not formed normally like they would be in a heart without an AV canal defect, but there are still two distinct valves as opposed to one large. And a partial, is that synonymous with incomplete? Oh, um, so other types. So a transitional AV canal has a small ventricular septal defect that's usually partially occlusive and is restrictive, still has that primum atrial septal defect, and then the abnormal AV valves. And then an incomplete AV canal is actually quite rare. And essentially it is still has the atrial septal defect and the ventricular septal defect, but it doesn't have the common AV valve. There are two distinct orifices, but that type is really rare. Sure. 
When I was preparing for today's conversation, I found that the textbooks made a delineation between calling something an AV valve and not a tricuspid or a mitral valve. Will you help me understand why that's so important? Yeah, because these are not embryologically normal, you can't really refer to them as a mitral or a tricuspid valve. The correct terminology is left AV valve and right AV valve. Though I find that many people will still use those terms in day-to-day life, the correct term is right and left AV valves. Oh, that is going to change my practice a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It can be hard and it ends up being a mouthful. (laughs) So next up, I hear when we were presenting these patients on rounds, we hear about balanced versus unbalanced AV canal. What is that talking about? Yeah, so balance refers to the likelihood that you'll have a two ventricle repair once this is all over. And really the simplest way to think about it is If you were to divide that common AV valve into two valves, are they going to have similar inflow into both ventricles? And are both ventricles relatively similarly sized? It's the easiest way to think about it. We have many different measures that we can use to determine balance versus unbalanced. But really, the first one that we use is just looking at the approximate inflow into each of the ventricles and their size. Unbalanced is rare, It's about 10 to 15% of complete AV septal defects, and right is going to be more common than left dominant in general. If you hear the one-liner of a patient and don't know anything else, what besides unbalanced AV canal do you need to hear in order to think, oh, I wonder if this patient is going to be needing the single ventricle pathway? So we can kind of grade it like mildly unbalanced, severely unbalanced, A severely unbalanced is more likely going to go down the single ventricle pathway, whereas the mildly unbalanced, you may be able to do a two ventricle repair depending on the AV valve leaflets. Yeah. So just to summarize this, if the AV valves were to send their blood flow to perhaps the right side of the heart much more often than the left side of the heart, we would call that an unbalanced AV canal. And those patients might be at higher risk of needing a single ventricle repair. Is that fair? Correct. Yeah. And if more of the blood's heading to the right ventricle, we'd call that a right-dominant unbalanced AV canal. As opposed to the left, we call that a left-dominant. Correct. There's a strong association with trisomy 21. Do they have a particular subtype or not really? So the association with trisomy 21 is very real. Trisomy 21 patients are more likely to have congenital heart defects. And of those that have congenital heart defects, around 40-45% are going to have complete AV septal defects. There's some association with Ristelli type, and then they also can have unbalanced defects as well. Last spring, I walked into the room of a patient who had just had a canal repair, and I, I was looking at her. And I realized that I was so like innately surprised that she didn't have trisomy. It was it was like a nice moment. <laughs> Without knowing the stats, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. There are patients that don't have trisomy 21 that also have canal. I'm presenting a patient to you on rounds. What do you need to hear if it's a canal patient in the one-liner in order to like really move forward? Like, What does the perfect one-liner look like for you? It's helpful to know the weight. And so this is a three-month-old male weighing five kilos with trisomy 21 who has balanced complete AV septal defect who is currently being medically managed for congestive heart failure. And then you can go into what are your management strategies for heart failure. And those are usually diuretics and fortified feeds. They end up on jet fuel so they can grow. 
I think that's kind of an ideal one-liner for me. You want to state if they are in compensated heart failure or decompensated heart failure, where are we on that spectrum of management and are they growing? Yeah. So it seems like the age and the size, the precise anatomy, the complications from their anatomy and what we're doing to fix it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And stratifying the severity of their outpatient heart failure by are they growing? And if so, with what extra things do they need? Right? Like, and they were on 26 kcal and they fell off their growth curve and they, you know, this is the home six, that type of thing. Yeah. I know that there's an association with the side of the IVC and some other anatomic things. When you're planning these kids pre-op, do you often need like, we need better imaging of the vessels than just a simple echo, things like that? The echo itself can usually clue us in if there's um, heterotaxy syndrome. The unbalanced AV canals are more likely to fall under the heterotaxy spectrum. And if we see bilateral SVCs or an interrupted IVC or other sighted signaling problems, then we will investigate further. Which kids would you like a pre-op cath on or a cardiac MRI, really advanced imaging to make sure you're planning the appropriate repair? Yeah, in general, an echo is going to give us enough information for their surgical repair. The times that you maybe want to consider a preoperative cath would be if you want more evaluation of their PBR. And so if you're worried that a patient has developed irreversible pulmonary vascular hypertension, then you may want to do a cath to better evaluate that. But in general, most of our patients don't need the hemodynamic or angiography from a cath preoperatively. Mm, sort of a, an extra procedure that might not. May not give us any additional information that the echo hadn't already told us. Cardiac MRI, you may use to get a better assessment of balance. So it can give you a better 3D modeling of the ventricles and the AV valves if you're thinking that a patient might be borderline to ventricle repair. In your practice and institution, do you feel like half, 20% patients getting this, these advanced imaging studies done or no? Not for this particular heart defect. I'd say most of the decisions are made from echo. Before you take these kids to the OR for a more complete repair, is it common to offer a procedure to limit pulmonary blood flow, like do some PA banding to really let them grow? In general, most patients do not need a PA band to limit the pulmonary blood flow. We're able to medically manage them to the point where they can have their complete repair. Occasionally, we will elect to do a PA band if an infant is particularly small or failing medical management to reduce their pulmonary blood flow and reduce their heart failure symptoms, though that would not be the most common pathway. Gotcha. And then if you have that patient who has a severely unbalanced AV canal who may need a single ventricle pathway, does genetic diagnosis like trisomy 21 influence your decision at all? So in general, patients with trisomy 21 can proceed down the single ventricle pathway. And I actually was just recently looking at this. There was a retrospective cohort study from 2019 from the Pediatric Cardiac Care Consortium that looked at infants with trisomy 21 that proceeded down the single ventricle pathway. And most of these were unbalanced AV septal defects. They do have lower survival rates, both in hospital mortality as well as intermediate and long-term survival, though there were many patients that were able to make it through Fontan palliation. It's a subgroup of patients that you want to be a little bit more thoughtful about their PVR and about any other problems that they may have when you're making the decision to go down the single ventricle pathway, and you want to make sure that the parents are fully educated on what potential outcomes may look like. Mm, Gotcha. All right, so you have your patient with a complete AV canal. When do you take that kid to the OR? What, What makes you actually put that kid under to get this repair done? 
Yeah, infants with complete AV septal defects tend to have heart failure at an earlier age. And so you'll notice that they get repaired faster or at an earlier age than a patient with just a VSD. Um, And that's usually because of the combination of all the shunting through the atrial and ventricular septal defects, as well as the AV valve regurgitation that most of these patients have. In general, these patients get repaired at around three to four months of life, assuming you can medically manage and achieve appropriate growth. And tell us how the change of pulmonary vascular resistance kind of influences this decision as well. Sure. And so just like with any other infant, the pulmonary vascular resistance decreases with time. And with that drop in the PVR, the shunt increases and will worsen the heart failure symptoms. The reason to not do the surgery earlier is because at a larger size, surgeons can get a better repair of the AV valves. Nice. And then if this is a first-year CARDS fellow presenting at surgical conference, what do you need in order to determine the best surgical approach? And then what do those end up being? Sure. We talk about three techniques when we talk about repair of AV septal defects. And so there's the single patch, the double patch, and then the modified single patch, also known as the Australian repair. And so the single patch and double patch, that is kind of what they are. With a single patch repair, there's one patch that's used to close the hole. Whereas with two patch, there's a patch for the atrial septal component and a patch for the ventricular septal component. And the general goal for this surgery is to create two relatively equal-sized AV valves that don't have significant regurgitation or stenosis, and then closure of the atrial and ventricular septal defects. I'd say that the two-patch repair is probably the most common for our complete AV septal defect repairs. The modified single patch uses one patch, and then you actually tack down the AV valves to the crust of the ventricular septum. And so the VSD is closed without a patch. It's just closed by bringing the AV valves to the septum. And that's going to be more common in our transitional AV septal defects that have a restrictive smaller VSD. And are there any patient-centered outcomes that would make them want to have a one-patch repair versus a two-patch repair? Or is it surgeon preference and anatomy-specific? Surgeon preference and anatomy-specific. I'm not a surgeon, but I think the most difficult part of the repair is the competence of the AV valves and making sure that those are equal sized and not significantly regurgitant or stenotic. Sure. So whatever we think is going to give the patient the best function and AV valve function post-op is what we will choose to do in the OR. Correct. So we talked a lot about how patients can have two ventricle repair. Maybe they need a single ventricle pathway, but what is a one and a half ventricle repair? I saw that somewhat when I was reading from preparing for this talk. Yeah, so it's halfway in between a 2V and a 1V repair, as its name suggests. The times you might consider it is if the right ventricle is borderline and you're not sure it can handle a full cardiac output to the lungs. Essentially, what we do is the Glenn portion of the single ventricle palliation, so the superior cavopulmonary connection. And then you leave the RV connected to the pulmonary arteries as well, either through their native pulmonary valve or through an RV to PA conduit. It allows for the circulation to be in series, like a normal two-ventricle repair, but it offloads the right ventricle and hopefully prevents RV volume overload in a borderline RV if you were to go down a full two-ventricle pathway. By doing the cavopulmonary anastomosis, you're offloading the smaller RV And so you're helping prevent RV failure with that volume offload. Gotcha. 
And you're essentially committing them to this pathway, correct? You don't go back to a biventricular pathway or repair later, would you? You actually could. There's no reason not to stay a one and a half V. However, if the RV grows and they feel like it could be adequate, they could potentially move to a two ventricle complete repair. They also can move to a full single ventricle repair as well. As they get older, the RV is not even able to handle the amount that it is receiving. That's interesting. It's something I didn't know about for sure. Mm -hmm. It's not something we commonly do, but it is a possibility for some of these patients. Great. So this patient, they're coming out of the OR, they're coming to your bedside in the CVICU, you're there for handoff. What are you sure that you want to get from the anesthesiology team and even the surgical team about how the repair went? What are the questions that you definitely want answered? Sure. In general, I have similar pieces of data I want to get and hand off for most of my patients coming out of the OR. And those include bypass times, how much bleeding there was, how much blood products they were given, any rhythm issues, how was their airway, and what does the TE look like? Oh, and by TE, I mean transesophageal echo. And I think in complete AV canal repairs, the TEE report is actually quite important. It can give you a sense of what the ventricular function looks like. It can tell you if there is AV valve regurgitation or stenosis postoperatively, because that can affect our ability to manage the patient's post-op. Nice. Are there things that you'll hear about on the TEE that you think, oh yeah, just a little bit of residual regurg, that's normal, or oh, this is really a red flag for me and I'm going to need to change my risk stratification? Yeah, I think in general, most of our patients aren't going to come out with really severe AV valve regurgitation anymore. You know, with TEE, the surgeons are able to revise in the OR if there's bad AV valve regurgitation. In general, it's just helpful to know if there is some. I remember being taught a phrase that AV valve regurgitation begets more AV valve regurgitation. And so the volume load on the ventricle can cause annular dilation and result in worse AV valve regurgitation. It can just be a kind of a vicious cycle. And so it's just nice to know what degree you're starting with and how aggressive you need to be in management post-op. All right. So we've talked about regurg and how you want to really make sure that your patient's not getting into that vicious cycle. What other immediate post-op complications are you looking for and how do you try and get ahead of them? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things is that these patients are going to be at risk for low cardiac output syndrome. And by that, I mean that they don't have enough cardiac output to meet their metabolic demands. I mean, this happens for a couple of reasons with AV septal defects. There's a dramatic increase in the afterload on the LV post-op between the closure of the VSD and making the AV valve competent and losing that AV valve regurgitation the LV now has to pump against a higher afterload as it's pumping against the systemic vascular resistance. One of the mainstays of management post-op would be inotropic support and afterload reduction, which makes milrinone the perfect choice in these patients. You'll find that a lot of our patients post-op end up with milrinone, and it's because of that combination of effects. Most patients will probably be on a little bit of milrinone, maybe a little bit of epi to help prevent the low cardiac output syndrome postoperatively. And then I think kind of the second thing you want to think about in this particular patient population is that you don't want to aggressively volume resuscitate them post-op. If they have a lower blood pressure, you wouldn't necessarily want to pull for a fluid bolus because of that risk of worsening AV valve regurgitation with volume overload. And so using your inotropic support a little bit more as opposed to volume resuscitation. 
Do you see that in the filling pressures that you end up shooting for? Or is that more of a general principle? So there are some institutions that I think you get an LA line and a CVP and you can really judge your filling pressures, though I think that's less common now and you really only have the CVP. And it is helpful to know, particularly in the OR, what CVP achieved an appropriate blood pressure for the anesthesiologist whenever you're taking over care. And then you kind of figure out what your ideal CVP is as the night goes on. And so if I have a super low CVP and the patient is like either dumping from their chest tube or making a lot of urine, then I might try a fluid bolus. If none of those things are happening, then I'm more likely to use my inotropic support. Are there any kind of particular arrhythmias or rhythm issues that you have in these patients post-op? Yeah. So in general, we have to think about things that affect the AV node. The AV node is not in a normal place in patients with complete AV canal defects, and the repair is happening very close to it. Anytime you have to worry about the AV node, you have to think about heart block and you have to think about jet. These patients are at risk for heart block postoperatively. So that's where having atrial ventricular wires are important so that you can do AV pacing, provide that synchrony. And we expect recovery within like three to five days before we would start to think about placing a permanent pacemaker because we often do see recovery. And then JET is also a potential problem that you can expect postoperatively. And we would use kind of our typical management strategy. So like remove catecholamines, sedate, cool, don't let them have a fever, And then ultimately, you may progress to antirhythmics and overdrive pacing. Nice. So we mentioned a strong association with trisomy. How is the post-op management, how do you tailor it specifically for your kids with trisomy 21? Do we change sedation, think more about the airway, the C-spine? In general, I would say that I don't do anything special post-operatively in my patients with trisomy 21. I recognize that they may have a more reactive pulmonary vascular bed. I find that some of our trisomy 21 patients are more likely to have pulmonary hypertension, whether or not it's because of sleep-disordered breathing or abnormal development of the lungs. And so I may have a higher suspicion for pulmonary hypertension post-op that needs management. Sometimes our sedation choices will change based on how the patient is reacting to what we're giving them, but I don't have any preconceived choices for patients with trisomy 21. I see what they need postoperatively. And then I think from an airway standpoint, it's helpful to know what their pre-op airway history is going into this, which we want to know in all of our patients before we extubate them. And so as long as they had an easy airway, we're able to bag mask ventilate preoperatively, and we have no known cervical spine issues, I don't necessarily do anything different as I'm preparing to extubate. But if any of those red flags come up, then I will be a little bit more cautious when it is time to extubate and may take a little bit longer to get to that point of extubation. Sure. So the learning point might be these patients might need a little more additional sedation and a bit more careful attention when it comes to extubation down the road. Yeah. So we talked a lot about your mental model for how you receive these patients from the anesthesia team and get them settled in CICU. What are your goals for these patients going into the first postoperative night? Yeah, my general goal is just stability, though I always tell my APPs and my fellows that that's not allowed to be their goal, because that's (laughs) our goal for everyone in the ICU. (laughs) In general, I'm happy if at the end of a night shift, if we're not on really high vasoactives, they didn't need a lot of volume resuscitation, and we're heading towards extubation. I think that is a good first post-op night for the patients. Nice. 
How soon after the first post-op night can you start really getting them ready for extubation? And so they may be ready to extubate as early as the next day. We actually have something called target-based care here in our cardiac ICU, where we look at our historical timeframes to extubation, to leaving the ICU, and to discharge. And then we have those posted at the bedside for patients with different cardiac lesions. Oh, awesome. And so it actually gives us a nice achievable goal that we can aim for. And for complete AV canals, our median time for extubation is post-op day one. So that's our goal based on our target-based care initiative. Nice. So outside the obvious, like the breathing tube still in, what are the main barriers to discharge? And when would you like to get these patients out of your CICU? Yeah. So in general, I'd say most patients are able to transfer three to four days post-op. And that's actually based on our target-based care historical medians. Like you said, the breathing tube has to be out, not on positive pressure, or at least on their baseline positive pressure if they started on positive pressure, off all continuous medications, and tolerating feeds is another kind of big one that I like to see before they leave the ICU, just to make sure that they don't get to the floor and then have feeding intolerance. I find oftentimes our ability to get off of Presidex ends up being a lot of hold for our patients postoperatively. I agree with that experience. And then about the feeding intolerance, would you just be concerned that feeding intolerance would be a manifestation of poor LV function? I'd be worried that it's a sign that they are in heart failure or inadequately managed heart failure. We have echoes and we should feel confident based on their function, their AV valve regurgitation, but it just is nice to see toleration of feeds just to kind of prove that they are doing okay from a hemodynamic standpoint. That's right. That's the little baby workout, right? Taking the bottle or breastfeeding. Yeah. It's their marathon. Yeah. So you get them out of the CVICU. They go from the card service to home. What immediate to long-term complications are you following for these kids? Early on in their post-op visits in the cardiology office, you want to think about their ventricular function. You want to think about their AV valve regurgitation, make sure there's not a pericardial effusion, and then managing their diuretics and their afterload reduction. In the more long-term follow-up, we're thinking about their competence of their AV valve still. You'll find that's the big one for our AV canal is how is their AV valve doing? Is it stenotic? Is it regurgitant? Is it causing problems? There is some risk for heart block down the road, though not commonly. And then just because of the way their heart was formed and the way that the left ventricular outflow tract is pushed anteriorly because of the way the AV valve was formed, there is risk for LVOT obstruction down the line. And so we talk about a gooseneck deformity, and that's just the way it kind of curves around. So you can have progressive LVOT obstruction later in life that we have to watch for. Nice. Great. Well, Dr. Melinda Corey, thank you so much for being with us today. This is a core topic, something that we'll see nearly every time we rotate through the CVICU. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention today before we wrap things up? I think probably just remember that these kids are at risk for high PVR going into surgery, and so that may be something you have to manage postoperatively. You have to worry about their AV valve regurgitation, and at least in the immediate post-op night, you need to use inotropic support to help prevent low cardiac output syndrome. Yeah, that sounds great. And that's really is what we take care of almost with every other baby who needs cardiac surgery. Yes. Worried about pulmonary vascular resistance, low cardiac output, all those core topics that we, we love to talk about here on the Pete's Grip. So thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. 
And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.